from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 21st. Today, the cracks in the president's impeachment strategy, families reshaped by the opioid crisis, and another Brexit hiccup. So it's been almost a month since Democrats announced that they're launching an impeachment inquiry into the president, trying to figure out whether he inappropriately pressured Ukraine to investigate a political rival. So since then, how much more do we know about what happened between President Trump and Ukraine? So we know a lot more. I'm Ashley Parker, and I cover the White House for The Washington Post. We know that there's two main players who are at the heart of this controversy, and it's the president himself who very much was orchestrating and and directing it and roping in sort of the full might of the federal bureaucracy. And the other person involved is the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who was not going rogue and freelancing, but as Giuliani himself has said, was working at the behest of his client, the president of the United States. And the reason we know this, a lot of this at least, is from basically two weeks of daily closed-door testimony before House committees where witnesses are coming up, they're spending all day there, and when we learn what they say, each new testimony offers at least one big bit of information that generally places the president and Rudy Giuliani sort of squarely at the heart of this throbbing scandal. So let's go back to some of those hearings that have taken place over the last couple of weeks. Who were the people who were testifying at those hearings and what were some of the major things that we heard from people who were in the room when they happened? I mean, basically every single day there was a new testimony, and each new testimony seemed to have at least one new bombshell. So three that stand out in my mind are Marie Yovanovitch. She was the former ambassador to Ukraine who was sort of suddenly recalled because Giuliani's cronies ran a smear campaign against her because they felt like she was impeding their financial interests in Ukraine. So that was one of the people who had a pretty interesting testimony. There was Fiona Hill, who was a former top Russia person dealing with the Ukraine on the National Security Council. Um, And then there was Gordon Sondland, who was a wealthy hotelier from Portland, Oregon, uh, a a big Republican donor. He was for Jeb Bush first, um, but basically he'd always wanted to be an ambassador. He then threw his support behind Trump, and Trump appointed him ambassador to the European Union. And interestingly, Ukraine is not part of the EU at all, but Trump had tasked him with Ukraine policy. And so Gordon Sondland was in the mix as well, and and he testified. And so from these three testimonies, what was the picture that emerged from what they had to say? So again, you had a picture of people who felt very uncomfortable with the way foreign policy was being run. Gordon Sondland, who of the three is probably the one who Trump allies were hoping would be the most exonerating. He's sort of a Trump loyalist. Even he said... He basically painted a picture and described a circumstance where he felt like the president created an atmosphere where diplomats and career foreign service officials had no good options. Um, They either had to follow the president's directives, which was to involve his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, in Ukraine policy, something that made everyone very uncomfortable, or they kind of had to abandon their policy goals with Ukraine. And they ultimately chose to do things they felt uncomfortable with and get Giuliani involved. But 
You sort of described the thing where, you know, everyone felt a little queasy about this, but the directive had come directly from the president and we felt we had no choice. And Gordon Sondland is also interesting because it had emerged that in a series of text messages, another diplomat had said, I feel very uncomfortable with withholding aid to Ukraine in exchange for a political favor. And Gordon Sondland had written back, you know, there's absolutely no quid pro quo. And it turns out the reason Gordon Sondland wrote that, he testified, was he had called the president and the president had been in a very bad mood, had been very upset by the mere question if there had been a quid pro quo and had told him repeatedly, no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo. But what Gordon Sondland says is, what I know to be true is that the president told me there was no quid pro Hmm. quo. I don't know if what the president said is actually the truth, but it is true that he said it. Hmm. So it's not particularly good for the president when one of your loyalists and allies is saying, you know, the president possibly lied to me, but I I was passing on this potential mistruth. But I think what's really interesting about what we've seen after these testimonies is that the White House isn't saying, oh, well, none of this is true. A lot of what they're doing is saying, yeah, I mean, that was true, but that— is totally normal, or we intended to do that, or what they are accusing us of is not outside the bounds of what we should have been doing in the first place. Absolutely. And the White House, their strategy has changed a bit. First, they said it was, or the president said it was the perfect call and totally appropriate, which not even his own aides believed. And then you had the president saying there was no quid pro quo and, you know, we did nothing wrong and this is absolutely our right to ask Ukraine to investigate corruption, which technically it is their right to ask Ukraine to investigate corruption. The The problem becomes when they were asking Ukraine to investigate the Democrats and the DNC and to investigate Joe Biden. And many administrations have asked Ukraine to investigate corruption. But then you had Mick Mulvaney in a pretty problematic press conference say, well, of course there was a quid pro quo, and you guys just need to get over it. To be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. That's what happens. There's always politics in foreign policy. And I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. I'm talking to Mr. Carl. He quickly realized while he may have been speaking the truth, that was a very problematic truth to speak. And then he put out a statement claiming he never said what we all watched him on video say. So the White House story has been changing a ton, trying to respond to each new bit of information. And I think what's also notable about the fact that the impeachment inquiry is really heating up right now is that this is also a time where President Trump is embattled on other fronts. Last week, he announced that he wanted to bring the G7 conference to his resort in Doral. He got a lot of flack for that. Over the weekend, he ended up announcing that that isn't going to happen anymore, that he heard the criticisms on that. And then we also have his decision-making on Syria, the fact that he pulled troops out of northern Syria, abandoning Kurdish allies there. And a lot of Republicans have been really outspoken about the fact that they disagreed with that decision. Mitt Romney made a speech on the Senate floor last week. America has abandoned an ally. Adding insult to dishonor, the administration speaks cavalierly, even flippantly, even as our ally has suffered death and casualty. Their homes have been burned and their families have been torn apart. Mitch McConnell had an op-ed in the Post that said that withdrawing from Syria is a grave mistake. So I think it's interesting that this is a time where 
President Trump is trying to get as much support from Republicans as he can. But at the same time, he's doing other things that Republicans have to kind of speak out against. Yeah, the president right now is absolutely at the most vulnerable point in his presidency. He's facing an impeachment inquiry where he needs the support of every single Republican. And he's facing a kind of rare moment where he's doing things that Republicans find so egregious that they've really come out strongly against him. So there's Syria, there's Doral. It doesn't mean they're going to impeach him, but— This is all coming at a moment where more than any other time in his presidency, he needs every single bit of Republican support that he can get. Because if and when the House votes to impeach him, and it looks like that is going to happen in a Democratic-controlled House, it gets kicked over to the Senate. The Senate can either convict or acquit. And in order to convict, 20 Republicans would have to join all the Democrats to do so. So the president cannot really afford any Republican defections. And again, you're not going to have Republicans voting to impeach the president just because they have a policy disagreement with him on Syria. But it does sort of create a bunch of little cracks in a wall that the president really can't allow to fall. Ashley Parker is a White House reporter for The Post. People go through their high school yearbooks in West Virginia and they count up how many people in their graduating class have died of opioids. People who are in recovery houses are told to keep black suits and black dresses with them because they will be going to so many funerals. Everyone has been impacted by this, most of all the children. Debbie Sensiper is an investigative reporter for The Post. You hear the term opioid orphan. The fact of the matter is, entire families have been destroyed. Not just a mother, not just a father, but grandparents, aunts, and uncles. People in West Virginia have died from opioids at a higher rate than in any other state. In 2017, that was 833 opioid-related deaths, three times the national average. We spent, Emily Corio, a journalist in West Virginia, and I spent six to eight months doing this reporting all over the state. Everywhere I went in West Virginia, you see these billboards on the side of the road calling on people to open their homes to foster children. Hmm. And I wanted to find out more about the littlest victims, the people who were left behind when parents and grandparents were in the throes of addiction. As the opioid crisis was growing, more and more children were left behind. They were either abused, neglected, abandoned, or orphaned, not just by parents, but by extended family members. And they had no place to send these kids. And so the child welfare system was forced to kind of pick up the slack and take in thousands of children that were impacted by addiction. So do you have any numbers on just how much these children have begun to kind of flood the system? So in the last few years alone, another 2,000 children entered foster care in West Virginia. 
the state says that more than 80% of the children have been impacted by drugs. These are everything from newborns who go into foster care right out of hospitals, right out of the NICU, to teenagers with no place to go. And this system, this foster care system in West Virginia was completely overwhelmed by this. There are not enough bed space. Caseworkers are overwhelmed. Neonatologists in hospitals are swamped. The state's trying to deal with that. They're trying to open emergency foster homes. But the budget for the foster care system in West Virginia has not kept pace with the crisis. You mentioned the fact that they now have billboards up on the side of the road trying to ask more West Virginia families to be foster parents or to adopt kids. Have people responded in West Virginia? Are there more people who are trying to bring some of these kids into their homes? What I found in West Virginia was how many people were trying to help and to open their homes, not just foster families, but there was a secretary in the Department of Health and Human Resources who decided to take in foster children. Mm. Nurses from NICUs are trying to take in foster children. Pastors, neighbors, families, friends, entire communities are pulling together to help the children who have been left behind by this epidemic. Did you talk to one of those families? We talked to a number of people, but the one that struck me most was Monica Kinder. She lives on the outskirts of Charleston. She has this rambling old house. I ended up visiting Monica's house late on a weeknight in early summer. Hi. Yes. You have a full house. <laughs> and it was like the craziest family reunion slash Christmas you'd ever seen. I mean, kids were everywhere. Toys were everywhere. Her husband's bouncing one of their adopted daughters on his shoulder. Monica's bouncing a newborn infant on her hip. Yes. Look Hi. at that baby. Hi. Hi. He up. He's still tired. There's a one-year-old that she had raised since birth, toddling all around the apartment. There's a dog sitting there trying to stay out of the chaos. She doesn't bark. She screams. Yeah, she screams. Monica raised two boys of her own with her husband, and they were grown and out of the house. And Monica decided to do something about this problem. And so she opened up her home to foster children. We've been fostering almost six years. She has taken in nearly two dozen children, some newborns straight from the NICU. Monica has not just fostered children, she's adopted the foster children that she's raised. She adopted a group of sisters, and now they are her daughters. All right, let's start. Okay. I'm Serenity, I'm 14. I'm Kaylee, and I'm 12. I'm Haven, and I'm 10. I'm I'm Lily, and I'm 8. The oh, littlest. Lexi is going right here. My name is Bob and I'm 50. <laughs> <laughs> and what's beautiful about their story is that I gave them the option whether they wanted to change their names or keep their old names. And they chose to change them because they wanted a fresh start. And so they sat at a computer, went on Google, <laughs> and they, they looked up popular girls' names. Mm -hmm. And then they went to court, they were adopted, and they officially became part of the Kinder family. What does she say about why this has become, like, the focal point of her life? She just considers it her calling. Something in my heart that I've always wanted to do because I grew up in foster care also. So that was my whole purpose, is to 
to foster care. She loves children, and she had the space in her house to do it. It's a really fascinating house because she put signs up over each of the girls' beds with these beautiful phrases about how they join the family. You know, each girl has their own cubby for toys. You know, they didn't have any of this before. Oh, you should see our bedroom. We play house and, like, in that little playhouse. And we cook in the wheelbarrow with water sticks. And for the kids who are in Monica's care as foster children, what are the chances that they'll ever be reunited with their birth families? So the process in West Virginia and other states is that when you're in foster care, it's considered generally a temporary situation until the state and the judge, ultimately the judge, decide whether to terminate the parental rights of the parent. And once the parental rights are terminated, if and when, then the child becomes eligible for adoption. So I think one of the hardest things for Monica is to take in a child that she knows was abused or neglected, but knowing that that child may ultimately be placed back, reunified with a parent who perhaps is not able to care for him. How old was he? Three days. He was three days old when I brought him home from the hospital. Yes. So now giving him up would be hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that a possibility? Mm-hmm. Um, he was born drug, drug addicted. He was for sure. Yes. Tell me more about what the situation is like specifically for infants who are exposed to opioids while in the womb. Right. So infants who are exposed develop symptoms of what's called neonatal abstinence syndrome. And that means that they're twitching, they're shaking, mm. they're crying, not a normal cry, but a very high-pitched whine that goes on and on and on. They can't be consoled. They don't like light. They don't like noise. You know, they really have to keep these babies in dark, quiet rooms because they react poorly. Mommy, can I have the baby? Does Monica feel like she and her family are being given enough support by the state? I would think Monica would tell you that there's not enough support. There may never be enough support to deal with so many children who came from homes. I mean, these are kids who come from homes where they hawk food stamps for pain pills and babies are left in soiled diapers for days at a time. And caseworkers and others describe how children learn after a while not to cry because Nobody ever comes to their aid when they do cry. So these are really traumatized kids. So Monica would tell you there's never enough support. She does get about $24 a day or so from the state per child, but she's got so many mouths to feed, rooms to renovate, clothes to buy, backpacks, school supplies, everything else, that it all adds up. So Monica and her husband have already adopted four kids, but you were there to see an adoption hearing for a fifth kid that they're adopting. We were not just there the day of, we were there the night before. Lexi, who was about to be adopted, super excited about it. For Monica, Lexi was adopted on, on Monica's birthday, so it was quite a day for Monica, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm adopted on her birthday. Lisa. 
Tomorrow's her birthday. Oh my God! You're I'm her present. What is special? I'm her present. That's great. Yep. I'm a good present. This sounds like such a happy and exciting moment for this family, but I could imagine that for the adults in the room, it's also bittersweet because you're thinking about all the kids who are in similar positions who won't have the opportunity to find a family that so embraces them and and provides such a supportive home for them. We were very fortunate to interview judges and judges, including uh, Judge Bailey, who oversaw the kinder adoption, also oversee things they don't want to oversee, you know, these the hearings with uh, abuse and neglect hearings and other things. On the one hand, we're very grateful for the outcome, but on the other hand, we're seeing we always have to worry what the children are going to think about what happened to their parents and why their parents are not the ones that are nurturing and loving them and seeing them through all the things that you need to do. I think that what we found in West Virginia is that they were overwhelmed by this epidemic, like many other places. And that I think they kind of came to the table a little bit late in terms of addressing this next generation of kids and what neonatologists and social workers and caseworkers and foster parents will tell you is that we don't know how these kids are going to fare 10 or 15 years from now. We don't know how a baby born addicted to opioids is going to do in school eight years from now. There's a lot of unknowns here about this next generation and what's going to become of them. I think the state is rallying now, but there's just a lot of questions, a lot of unknowns. Debbie Sensipper is an investigative reporter for The Post. This story was also reported by Emily Corio, who collected the audio, as well as a team of student journalists from George Washington University and West Virginia University. On Monday morning, four major drug companies reached a settlement with two counties in Ohio. Under the deal, Summit County and Cuyahoga County will receive $260 million to help with recovery from the opioid crisis. The settlement is important because it came out just hours before the start of a landmark federal trial over responsibility for the opioid epidemic. And this one test case might be a sign of how courts could treat thousands of similar lawsuits followed by other counties, states, and Native American tribes against drug manufacturers and distributors. And now, one more thing. Over the weekend, lawmakers in British Parliament were debating a roadmap to leave the European Union. And as that was happening, huge crowds were protesting, demanding a second referendum on Brexit. 
Brexit stands in no man's land. We are still not sure where we, where exactly we are and where we're going. I'm William Booth. I'm the London bureau chief for The Washington Post. According to Bill, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has a tentative deal with the European Union on the terms for leaving. But just like for his predecessor, Theresa May, Johnson's problem is trying to get Parliament to approve that deal. Boris Johnson last week secured successfully, against all odds, Boris got a deal with his European counterparts in Brussels. So Boris has a Brexit deal, a withdrawal deal, how to get Britain out of the EU. He brought the deal home on Saturday and he ran into a brick wall. To move Amendment A, I call the Right Honourable Gentleman, Member for West Dorset, Sir Oliver Letwin. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Sir Oliver Letwin introduced an amendment that said that the parliament cannot vote for Boris's Brexit deal until they passed all of the other uh, legislation involved with it. Uh, The purpose of the amendment, as has been said in several interventions and speeches, is to keep in place the insurance policy, which prevents us from crashing out automatically if there is no deal in place by the 31st of October. So that slows things down considerably. And instead of being on a fast train to Brexit, we are now on a very slow local train. So there's all sorts of mischief and amendments and add-ons and barnacles uh, they can attach to this withdrawal agreement. And that's what Boris Johnson and Team Boris did not want. Order the Prime Minister. Speaker. Thank you. I will tell uh, our friends and colleagues in the EU exactly what I've told everyone in the last 88 days that I've served as Prime Minister, that further delay would be bad for this country, bad for for our European Union and bad for democracy. So next week... On Monday, the Speaker of the House of Commons... Today's motion is in substance the same as Saturday's motion. John Burkow did not give Boris Johnson an up-down vote on his deal. My ruling is therefore that the motion will not be debated today as it would be repetitive and disorderly to do so. So he is thrown, as the Brits say, a spanner in the works. Spanner being a wrench. I will summarize the rationale for it in a sentence. It is a necessary rule to ensure the sensible use of the House's time and proper respect for the decisions that it takes. And the lawmakers in Parliament are going to get uh, probably a lot more say and a lot more uh, heaving and throwing back and forth over uh, where this withdrawal agreement goes. I think that Boris will not meet his Halloween October 31st deadline. It, it, It doesn't look realistic at this point, no matter how hopeful he is. He He asked for delay. The EU will certainly give him delay. He reluctantly asked for delay. But this October 31st deadline, when they are out, uh, looks more dubious um, in London by the hour. Bill Booth is the London bureau chief for The Washington Post.
That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you want to get the latest news about the impeachment inquiry, The Post has a new podcast feed for that. It's an ongoing collection of all the impeachment-related stories from Post Reports and our other political podcasts here at The Washington Post, Can He Do That?, and The Daily 202's Big Idea. To subscribe, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts, or search for the feed in your podcast app. It's called Impeachment Inquiry Updates from The Washington Post. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.